Hello, and welcome to Automator episode four. Wait, that's not right. You may have noticed in your podcatcher feed that uh, the cover art and the header, depending on what kind of uh, podcast app you're using for the show, have changed. So yeah, um, I've decided to make a change. Automator is now going to be called The Mike Dominic Show. We're going to take a little bit of a broader view of technology, um, kind of a programming focus, but also, you know, wider trends. I really want to have more of a, um, I hate the word holistic, but I guess that's the way you would say it, holistic view on the entire industry from the perspective of, you know, us, the developers, the engineers, the DBAs, but also, you know, people who maybe work beside us all the time, but don't get a whole lot of, uh, you know, maybe recognition, right? I'm talking to community managers, QA folks, and keeping some of the automation stuff, or really all of it. So for instance, we're going to have an exciting conversation in the coming weeks with uh, someone from a rather prominent 3D printing company, which should be fun. So yeah, so welcome to episode four of the now christened Mike Dominic show. Um, And let's dive right into it. So First off the bat, actics. Now, if you're not a rustation, which is really a uh, just very difficult thing to say, it's a fancy way to you know refer to Rust programmers, you probably have no idea what actics is. It's a very popular web framework in Rust. Um, it's an open source framework. It was written by someone named Nikolai Kim, who up until I would say two days ago at the recording, by the way, it's January the 21st as we record, um, had been maintaining the project. He had written um, a pretty interesting note on GitHub, basically going into you know some of the challenges of maintaining an open source project. He was getting a lot of heat for using the unsafe keyword. Now, a couple, there's a little bit of like basic Rust knowledge. You kind of need to understand the controversy here. Rust is designed to be safe and not just like type safe, but really it's designed with general safety in mind. The idea being there's a whole queue of issues that you just can't fall into if you're programming in Rust where, you know, other languages are not right. One thinks of JavaScript as a great example of that or my, you know, beloved Ruby or even Python, right? So what happened is some folks got into looking at the code of this framework and found that um, that he was using the unsafe keyword quite a bit. Now, I am not going to put my hands on the scale. I have done some open source Rust. I have done some porting, particularly of a few Rust projects to like Mac OS, or I've modified a few things, and I write Rust in some of my own applications. I, I do not like to use the unsafe keyword. I don't believe that zealotry on this front is really appropriate. I think, you know, it is a tool in the language for a reason. Granted, a lot of, or some people, I should say, believe that that reason should be limited to interfacing with other languages or frameworks or operating system level stuff. I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth on this. It's certainly true that you do give up quite a bit of the benefits of the safety that is inherent in the design of the Rust language when you overuse that unsafe keyword. Having said that, I also use it. I, I try to use it moderately, and I, I certainly wouldn't, uh, you know, in a code review, necessarily see the use of the unsafe keyword as a red flag. But to each his own, and I think, you know, I'd love to have somebody from the Rust project or some, you know, pretty day-to-day active Rust developers 
uh, to kind of discuss really this whole unsafe thing because it, it is a fundamental philosophical question, right, of how safe and how tightly enforced does that safety really need to be both at the language level and at the programming style level. So there's your little detour into Rust unsafe controversy. Uh, so anyway, so N Nicolay decides he doesn't want to do this anymore, but I, I apologize if I butcher any names. At first, he says he's going to take everything down from GitHub, etc., etc. People don't like that. You can go to the Rust subreddit and see, and it's understandable why people wouldn't like that, right? You're relying on an open source project, and there's some chance that it might disappear soon. That's just not what you want. So, so um, this situation, there's a bunch of blog posts about it. People go back and forth. I, I have to say, I have a, a ton of um, sympathy for Nicolay here. As someone who has maintained open source projects and who has been on the receiving end of some of the, uh, you know, kind of less than friendly issue requests or pull requests, it's really not a ton of fun. And it, it, it's, it's certainly a problem. Other folks, particularly in the Linux community, have spoken about this issue. Um, I, I do think it's, it's, he has a fair point. I'm not sure that just, you know, RMRing the entire project is the right way. And in fact, that's not what happened. So a GitHub issue was opened um, entitled Project Moving Forward. The long and short of it is a major contributor to the project named Yuki Ukushi. Again, I apologize if I butcher the name. That's a Japanese name, and I am in Florida. So, so Yuki Ukushi is going to continue uh, the development of the project and continue to be the maintainer so Nikolai can take, take a step back. That is, a, honestly, I, I know it's not like the perfect FOSS project story, and I could definitely understand how people might feel it was kind of a, you know, a tempest in a teapot. But this is maybe a, I won't say a, a pure blueprint, but this isn't a bad outcome, right? The community that relies on this project still has the project they rely on, and it is still going to be actively maintained and developed. The maintainer who, who by all accounts and by his own admission, was just, you know, getting a bit burned out, right? It happens, it happens. I mean, these things are hard to do. You're volunteering your time. And he gets to take a step back. He's actually an, an engineer at Microsoft. You know, so I'm sure his day-to-day -day job is also fairly challenging or super challenging, I would imagine. So yeah, he you know, he gets to rest. Uh, maybe not rest, but he gets to, you know, take a step back from the project. Yuki gets to maintain it and keep it moving forward. And the whole community gets to keep moving on. I think that's great. I, I do wish we didn't have these stories every couple months about... You know, it just seems like every few months there's some like vitriol thrown at an open source project maintainer and then he or she has to take a step back because, you know, they just can't take it anymore. Right. Um, I, I kind of I don't but I don't know how that's like saying, how could you fix the Internet? Right. Make people be nice on the Internet, whether it's Twitter or GitHub, it's going to be bad. Um, so that's pretty, pretty interesting. The other story that really caught my eye this week, and I don't want to dive into it deeply, but there was this. Um, let's just say somewhat heated conversation about the .NET platform and the CLR. Full disclosure, I am a member of the .NET Foundation. However, I have not done much with the foundation really in a while. And, you know, I came into this thinking, okay, so, you know, the cool kids are saying, uh, .NET's old, it's terrible. And then as I read some of the less flame-wary criticisms, I realized, well, actually yeah like there's there's a lot of baggage there and 
it, th- there are some fair issues. Now, this is not a topic I want to dive into deeply today because I'm talking to a few people about having them on to kind of have sort of a, you know, kind of a debate format where we go back and forth on this. But it's interesting to note that, like, the CLR is really like a product of its time. And I, I personally think it's, you know, from a technology standpoint, it's one of the most impressive technologies I've basically seen uh, in terms of, you know, programming platforms and tools and particularly environments like that, right? And, I, you know, I obviously I put the JVM in the same category. But that whole time of like runtimes seems to be fading, right? We just talked about Rust. Well, in Rust, you're, you're, you're spitting out binaries for your platform. Uh, same with Go, you know, the, if you're not doing Rust and you're doing one of these hot new languages, you might be doing Go. I don't know what to think about that. I'm not sure where, where that's going to go. I mean, I, I don't think this whole idea that, you know, .NET or the CLR are dying is even like remotely true just because, well, there's so many people using .NET, so many people, you know, with, with projects like Project Uno and Avalonia it's it's super attractive particularly for like client side cross-platform stuff now is it as attractive as doing a javascript html5 interface via something like a pwa well i you know i i don't know it depends on what kind of access to os functions you need and the other thing is the the html5 ecosystem which i know is a dated term i just can't get out of my head is um you know is catching up every day right javascript it the the barriers to being able to do things with web technologies um on all these platforms are falling down with maybe the exception of ios because apple does restrict that some so that leads to our next quick story for the day apparently app developers can sue apple for making apps artificially expensive via their 30 percent cut I don't even know what I think about this. This is like, you know, years ago, like in 2014 on Coda Radio, I used to rant and rave about how like the App Store was such a controlled market and, you know, Apple was in many ways predatory to small developers. And I almost feel like this might have been great in 2014 or 2013. Well, now we're in 2020 and, you know, the exciting action to me at least isn't happening on mobile. It isn't happening on iOS. It isn't happening on Android. It's in IoT, it's in automation, it's in, you know, really like, frankly, small devices that can just do cool stuff. Now, of course, if you're in the gaming industry, I'm sure iOS is like, you know, huge for you. But I'm thinking like really useful technologies. I just, I, you know, the, the wheels of the government and like justice or whatever move slowly. I just feel like this is in a lot of ways yesterday's war, but it is interesting. I don't know what will come of it. I do have to say, I, as I've said for literally years, 30% is pretty damn steep, right? Like, it, it just it doesn't cost them th- that much to run that store. Um, but again, the model of selling paid apps is basically dead. So now we're talking about in-app purchases. We're talking about, you know, I, I think more interesting is the European case of Spotify going after Apple for basically, you know, handicapping the Spotify app on iOS, which Apple responded to by allowing it to work with, uh, I believe, CarPlay. Um, but still, Spotify has a 30% tax on on anything they get in the app, right? So that's that's pretty bad. Um, and I I don't I don't you know I don't want to say this is unimportant, and obviously I don't think that because I decided to put it in here. But I almost feel like 
there's there's something deeper than just the 30% price if you're going to have this conversation. And I'm just not sure... I just, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't believe many developers are are making their money by selling you an iOS app. Now I know there are, right? You know, there are. There's, you know, I use uh, Overcast by Marco Armit. If you get the app free, you pay five dollars, effectively buying the premium version. Granted, that exists a lot. A lot of developers do it, but I would be very skeptical if there's a lot of like, you know, I think about people like Panic Software um, or FlexiBits who who. I believe Flexibus actually, uh, well, they do fantastical for, for iOS. I take it back. But I don't think there's a lot of people like that who, you know, who are, who are making significant amounts of money on this platform via direct purchases of their applications, right? And I, I think we already know, if you look at the top grossing charts, that the majority of in-app purchases are, are frankly, you know, kind of, I don't want to say bad, but... Let's just say microtransactions, sleazy games. Could we say that? Because that seems about right. So that's, you know, that's kind of a bummer to me. So that's it. So this is just a quick intro episode here to get us moving along. We're going to have a guest for next week. Um, for a while, I'm going to do rotating guests and see if we end up with a co-host at some point. Kind of keeping it loose, trying to keep a schedule of one week. Um, I do want to solicit some feedback and stories in the show notes first of all everything for the act acting stuff is in the show notes and i put the subreddit the show has a subreddit if you want to submit stories comments feedback please subreddit's the best way to go uh it saves everybody the hassle of worrying about spam filters which have been a problem in the past and i don't like them uh you can reach me on twitter at dumanuko i do tweet a lot and i tend to reply and the show does have a Twitter. It's uh, M Dominic Show. I again, I would love your feedback. If you have a cool story, let me know. The other thing is, I am very, very intentionally trying to find maintainers of you know less well-known maintainers of open-source projects to bring on the show. You know, folks who aren't getting on to like uh, you know think big tech podcasts, right? Like you know, folks who aren't who are in maybe more boring ecosystems or who are like working on large FOSS projects or maybe like, you know, FOSS projects aren't that large, but people know about and use. I'd love to have you on. I'm also kind of looking to do something weird and it, it, it is experimental, so it might not work out. I want to bring on a few people who are new to the industry and kind of, you know, get that side of the experience. I remember in the code, you know, when we were doing Coda Radio, Every week there was emails from, you know, the same kind of form email, right? I just got out of college. I just got out of a boot camp. I just got out of trade school. And, you know, I feel like that is a conversation that would be great to explore. Uh, so if that describes you, please get on the subreddit. Also, you know, going to be looking at tech as a whole. So I can't promise we're going to have like programming language of the week. We are going to have either tools, books, or projects of the week, though. So again, my my primary motivation here is to promote FOSS or open source, and I, and I use FOSS interchangeably, which I you know just to include free software, but I, I generally mean both, right? Um, that isn't you know isn't going to make the front page of like your prominent Linux blogs or the front page of like Ars Technica, right? Not that it, you know, not that we might never do something more mainstream. Um, or that we won't ever want to talk about anything proprietary, but 
I am looking for, I, I should rephrase it. I am looking to make a positive effort, a positive forward conscious effort to not just go for like the obvious, you know, hey, let's get someone from Mozilla on, right? Having said that, if you are from Mozilla and want to come on, come on, right? Like I, you know, I'm obviously going to be reaching out to people I know. Um, you may hear, and you almost certainly will, some uh, old voices from the past other than Jar Jar's. So that will be cool. And I, you know, I'm open to suggestion. I really want this to be feedback driven. So jump on the subreddit and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Has a great day. Jar Jar loves you.